Good afternoon from the KLX Studios in Berkeley, California. I'm Franklin, and you're listening to the Berkeley Rock Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, toxic chemicals and seeing the future. In addition, we'll be joined by Professor Christopher Brennan, who will talk about cavitation bubbles. Also, we'll find out what atomic force microscopy is. So stay tuned for all of this, plus the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week, coming right up here on the Berkeley Grok Science Show. I'm Frank Ling. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee, the voice of utter amusement. (laughs) (laughs) That's just funny, man. So can you see the future, Charles? Clouded is it? Many things are clouded, mainly because of my astigmatism. (laughs) But uh, the future, yes, that remains a mystery to me. So uh, it turns out humans have this unique or maybe not so unique ability to envision possible future events. And what some scientists have done with fMRI, they've actually been able to locate regions in the brain that are active when we try to envision these future events. So this is producing the mental imagery of future events. Right. And it turns out these regions are actually similar to the ones we use to recollect past events. In some cases, the regions respond with the same intensity. In other cases, imagine a future event will have greater intense activity in your brain. Hmm. So, for example, if you were lighting up, for example, your visual areas, yeah. when you're remembering something, yes. if you're now trying to create a future event, yeah. it's the same areas. Something like that. Wow. Especially this... with, say, birthdays. Or... Wow. So is it the same kind of areas when you're actually experiencing the event as well? I believe so, yeah. They, oh. they light up on the fMRI. Okay. Same brain areas are involved in past, present, and future. I'm not sure about the present, but... <laughs> Well, but what is the present, anyway? It's a gift. <laughs> yeah. All right, so uh, this is the, uh, a very nice paper written by uh, Booner at Washington University, in our very favorite journal, actually. Oh, is it? Oddly, you know, there's not a lot of people that actually image that part of the body functionally. Functionally, yes. Anyway, this journal would be, of course, the Proceedings. Of the National Academy of Sciences. PNAS. All right. Well, this story is also from our very favorite journal. Well, we're on a roll today, huh? <laughs> I guess so. Well, we're, you know, the National Academy should actually be sponsoring the show, considering how many stories we do from that illustrious journal. <laughs> <laughs> we're actually endorsing them, right? You know, I've submitted papers to PNAS. Uh-huh. They rejected every time. Jeez. Uh, you know, how's that for gratitude? Well, you know, I think they've probably rejected Nobel Prize winning papers as well, right? Yeah, well, probably. I was reading recently with Peter Lauterbur, who got the Nobel Prize for developing MRI. Uh-huh. Apparently, his first draft of Nature got rejected. Well, what is Nature now? <laughs> Trendy journal. <laughs> we know it's all about science, really. <laughs> That's actually about PLOS, because it started here at Berkeley, that one. Open source, man. That's right. Anyway, so there is a story here, oddly enough. Uh, it has you mean to... <laughs> not just a moral? I, I don't know if morality ever plays into science. <laughs> I thought science was amoral. <laughs> so what it turns out, though, is that environmental contamination, as most people know, can cause birth defects. Right. And one particular group of toxic chemicals are called endocrine disruptors. They screw up your hormone system, basically. Uh, yeah, but interfere specifically this group with reproductive hormones, and they can, as a result, cause sterility. Okay, so basically they lose all sex characteristics? Uh, well, so that's the interesting... So this is part of the study that was uh, done by reproductive biologist Michael Skinner of Washington State University in Pullman, and he reported this in the recent edition of Science. 
And what they showed was this particular fungicide named vinclozolin, which is used to spray vineyards and other crops, actually causes birth defects that aren't genetically based as far as mutating the genes. Mm -hmm. But rather what occurs is that it's an epigenetic effect, meaning that it causes other compounds to latch onto particular genes and affect their expression. Oh, sort of like a catalyst. <laughs> yeah, in sort of a genetic term. But the interesting thing is that this epigenetic mechanism, they suggest, mm. can be passed down through the generations, huh. which is sort of unexpected and kind of unheard of. So you basically pass these mutations on to Yeah, so I guess, yeah, I guess they're not suggesting that there's actual changes in the base pairs going on, but rather yeah. changes in the expression of these genes. Oh, I see. Which is interesting. Their method of actually measuring this was odd. It was done, again, with, in Skinner's group, together with a team from the University of Texas in Austin, which was co-led by David Cruz and Andrea Gore. This was a behavioral study. What they did is they put male mice that had been sprayed with this fungicide in a cage with female mice and just measured to see how attractive they were to the female mice. Oh. And apparently these male mice weren't <laughs> as attractive as untreated males, suggesting that somehow the drug exposure is causing... <laughs> Changing them. These are like third generation mice. Okay. Suggesting that effect had been passed down. Right. Again, it's certainly the effect is to cause descendants to become less sexually attractive. To... Not so sexy times. Yes. <laughs> but according to Sarah Zala of the Conrad Lorenz Institute in Vienna, she says that the jury's still out on whether or not this is an epigenetic mechanism. So there you go. Again, published in our very favorite journal. The Proceedings. Of the National Academy of Sciences. PNAS. And that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. This is the Berkeley Grok's Science Show you're listening to. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, Professor Christopher Brennan will join us to discuss cavitation bubbles. So stay tuned. Science Show. Well, when most of us think of bubbles, we envision playfully blowing through a straw in our soda to create such a display. But a process of creating bubbles in liquid medium known as cavitation may have far-reaching practical consequences, both beneficial and sometimes detrimental. Well, joins today on Berkeley Grox to discuss the remarkable world of bubbles is Professor Christopher Brennan. Professor Brennan is the Richard L. and Dorothy M. Heyman Professor of Mechanical Engineering at the California Institute of Technology, recipient of numerous honors and awards, including a Fulbright Award, Fluid Science Award, and the Richard Feynman Prize. His research investigates aspects of complex fluid flow, and he joins us today to discuss the process of cavitation. Professor Brennan, thank you very much for joining us today on Berkeley Grox. Yes, thank you. Okay, I'm, I'm curious. Can you explain what is the process of cavitation? Cavitation is what happens when, in the flow of a liquid, the pressure falls below vapor pressure and vapor bubbles are formed in the liquid. In regions of a flow, usually where the velocity is quite high, the pressure becomes quite low and, and bubbles are formed in that region of the flow. And they subsequently can have a number of deleterious effects. 
Uh, what are some examples of these type of deleterious effects? The bubbles, uh, when they're formed, particularly when they're formed in liquids at uh, kind of common or normal temperatures, are very violent. They grow very violently and they collapse even more violently. And that collapse is so violent that when it occurs close to a solid surface, it can actually eat through that solid surface, cause damage to it. And it's therefore, when cavitation occurs, for example, in a high-speed pump or in a ship's propeller, it can often eat through the metal, the, the steel of that propeller and cause substantial damage within a space of only maybe six months. So it's a very serious problem in a number, in quite a number of circumstances. Another deleterious effect is that the cavitation can also cause the performance of that pump or that propeller to be a great deal less efficient and less effective uh, than it would be in the absence of the cavitation. A third deleterious effect is that it can cause instabilities in the flow itself. That's, for example, when it occurs in a rocket engine, it can cause that rocket to vibrate so violently that it may threaten the, the integrity of the vehicle itself. I see. Are, are there any ways of preventing these type of bubbles from forming? In some cases, there aren't any ways. Some, in some cases, for example, in a high-speed rocket engine, it's simply inevitable. And so you have to learn to deal with it and, and learn to uh, deal with the deleterious effects. In some other circumstances, by raising the pressure, you can eliminate the bubbles. So uh, there are circumstances the cavitation can be eliminated, and there are other circumstances where you have to learn to deal with it. Uh, I, I'm curious, how exactly is cavitation different from another physical process like boiling? Uh, good question. Uh, no, it's, uh, fundamentally, they're very similar. The difference is that when you use the word boiling, you're usually thinking about a liquid at high, high temperatures, uh, whereas at cavitation, in cavitation, you're normally thinking of a liquid at low temperatures. Well, the temperature of the liquid makes a big difference. The violence of the bubble growth and collapse at low temperatures, and this is strangely non-intuitive, the violence of the bubble growth and collapse at low temperatures is much more violent than it is at high temperatures. So that's why your kettle, which of course forms bubbles all the time, that's why your kettle lasts sometimes many years, whereas a propeller that's cavitating will not. So the high temperature helps. It helps to damp down the violence of the motion uh, of the growth and collapse of those bubbles. The fundamental reason for that difference is that the vapor density at high temperatures is much, much greater. And so you have to evaporate much more liquid to make a bubble grow at high temperatures. And so they, therefore you build up a kind of thermal boundary layer on the bubbles that inhibits the rate of vaporization, therefore inhibits the rate of growth or collapse of the bubbles. At low temperatures, the vapor density is so small that you only have to evaporate a tiny amount of liquid to cause a very large change in the volume of the bubble. I see, I see. But besides these deleterious type effects, cavitation bubbles are also used in a number of uh, beneficial uses. Absolutely, and I should have mentioned that earlier. And increasingly these days, there are medical procedures and devices that utilize cavitation for very beneficial effects. For example, in lithotripsy, which is the process by which a patient is submerged in a bath of water and shock waves are focused on a kidney stone in order to break up that kidney stone, cavitation 
at that focal point on the surface of the kidney stone is one of the processes which breaks up the kidney stone. So there, cavitation is being used to very beneficial effect. As long as you can focus tightly enough on the stone and the surrounding tissue is not also damaged by the cavitation. And that, that kind of collateral damage is a problem in some of these instances. Another surgical example would be in the very common procedure of treating cataracts where a, a process called phacoemulsification is used, a very fine probe that vibrates is inserted into the old lens and it vibrates and cavitates to break up the old lens so that it can be suctioned out with minimal trauma to the eye. That's incidentally the same process as the dentist uses with that tool to clean your teeth, uh, which vibrates, and it's not the vibration that removes the uh, plaque and other deposits on the teeth, but rather the cavitation. So ultrasonic cleaning is a general procedure of cleaning, and it's really not the ultrasound that generates the cleaning, but rather the cavitation that's generated by the ultrasound. Those are just a few of the many modern uses for this process of cavitation. You see, the fundamental process here is that you take this energy and when the bubble collapses, that energy is focused into a very tiny point. And so this is one of the few circumstances where you could easily focus energy in that way. Focusing of that energy produces not only the violence that creates the damage or the beneficial effect in lithotripsy, but it also can produce light. You can also, of course, hear it. That's the sign that you hear when you hear cavitation. So there are many other beneficial effects. It's also true that its cavitation is being used in laser surgery to make very fine incisions in microsurgery. So there are many such circumstances in which cavitation is being used to beneficial effect. Hmm. Uh, One of the more interesting examples recently was in physics where people have used these high energy areas of the bubble to presumably induce fusion. Uh, Yeah, I don't really believe that. There are some papers that claim that, but as in other cold fusion claims in recent years, I think uh, people are very skeptical. There's no doubt that when you collapse a cavitation bubble that you generate very high temperatures. And the reason for that is that there's always a small amount of dissolved gas in the liquid. In the normal case, a small amount of air gets into the cavitation bubble when it's formed. And when that bubble then collapses, that small amount of air is, is highly compressed and it heats up adiabatically to very large temperatures, uh, very large pressures. Temperatures of the order of 5,000 degrees Kelvin for a tiny instant in a tiny spot are not at all uncommon and, and are readily explained on the ba- just on the basis of adiabatic heating of that gas. But there have been some observations in more recent times in which people claim to have measured temperatures as high as 10,000 degrees Kelvin, the the collapse point of a cavitation bubble. Uh, That takes a little more explanation than just adiabatic heating. And there are a number of fairly straightforward explanations that have been put forward to try and explain those temperatures of about 10,000 degrees Kelvin. None of them require cold fusion to explain. Hmm. Curious, though, uh, what are the other potential applications or where do you see uh, cavitation bubbles being applied in the future? 
Well, uh, it's always hard to predict the future, but it's certainly true that this process by which you can uh, create a, a very intense spot of energy, a spot of light, has many other uh, possible surgical, medical, and technological applications being used for processing materials where, where such high temperatures for a very small instance are extremely useful. One of the areas that's been explored is a processing of wastewater, where a cavitation in wastewater can be used to break up any unpleasant, unwanted long-chain molecules that may be contaminating that water. So that's one possible very large-scale application uh, of cavitation. I think I see continued development of the applications in the medical field, both in those circumstances where cavitation causes a real problem, and incidentally, there are also such problems in medicine, for example, in artificial heart valves or artificial hearts, where cavitation is a problem and it's going to have to be dealt with in order to minimize the adverse effects of cavitation in those kinds of devices. I should mention that what happens there is that the cavitation if it occurs in an artificial heart valve, causes uh, excessive hemolysis, that's breakup of the red blood cells. And so that is a problem, and that needs to be addressed in the future development of artificial heart valves and artificial hearts. So I, I also see it being used for intense microsurgery, where picosecond pulses of focused laser light are used to produce tiny incisions of the order of uh, microns in size, the kinds of incisions that you would need to make in intricate microsurgery, for example, in brain surgery. So those are some of the very many circumstances I see cavitation being used in in the future. Well, it, it certainly sounds like a fascinating area to be involved in. I'm just curious then to close, how did you become interested in this particular area? Uh, I guess I started when I was a graduate student and when I was a postdoc at a place called the National Physical Laboratory in London many, many years ago, I did the first experiments on cavitation that I was involved in and they are just beautiful and fascinating flows to watch. <laughs> and so the, uh, part, of the, part of the attraction for me was in the visual beauty of these flows. Part of it was in the intriguing side effects or possibly beneficial effects that these phenomena can produce. So I think that's, that's a partial explanation. Uh, well, they certainly are fascinating. And uh, Professor Brennan, I do want to thank you very much for joining us today on the Berkeley Rock Science Show. It's my pleasure. And you were just listening to Professor Christopher Brennan from Caltech discussing cavitation bubbles. This is the Berkeley Grox Science Show you're listening to. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, it's the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week. So, stay tuned.
the game, the Grokatron 5000. It's our supercomputer, formerly known as the Atari 2600, and today the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic effervescent or stagnant. So for the following five items, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know, are they effervescent or stagnant? Uh, Professor Brennan, are you ready to play our game, the Grokatron 5000? Okay, okay. Okay, item number one, the Windows operating system. Uh, stagnant. Mostly because I struggle with it all the time. It doesn't effervesce for me. <laughs> okay, so number two, a sport of canyoneering. Oh, effervescent for sure. Effervescent tripled many times. There's nothing more exciting than coming down a, a canyon with waterfalls and, and, and challenging the elements and, and doing it successfully and elegantly. Uh, so do you recommend more people try it? Absolutely. I think everyone should try canyoneering. All right, uh, number three, the Hubble Space Telescope. Effervescent. It has been one of the most spectacular successes in astronomy for many, many years. We have discovered so much more about the outer reaches of the universe as a result of the Hubble Telescope. Okay, uh, item number four is reality television shows. Uh, stagnant for me. I never watch them, so uh, I, I guess that was a rather premature uh, judgment, but I never watch them. I'd rather be out and doing my own reality in the canyons. Okay, and finally, number five, the Republican Party. Stagnant. I think it's time we move to a different strategy in some of the major political issues facing this country. All right. Well, Professor Brennan, I do want to thank you very much for joining us today on the Berkeley Grok Science Show and, of course, talking about the process of cavitation. My pleasure. All right, Trebek, I'll play your little game. The game is atomic force microscopy, measuring the force in a 34 needles, Trebek. Move down to atomic scales to measure exactly the spatial resolution there. Hi, I'm SpongeBob. I'm looking for the crab nebula. In the sea, we only have crab legs, but where's the crab nebula? If you know what you think you know, email us at grocks at hotmail.com. You won't win anything, but you might just live over the sea. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grox. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grox, you can email us at grox at hotmail.com. Berkeley Grox, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music.